HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. We talk a lot on this show about the importance of thinking more about where your food comes from and why it is so important to, quote, know your farmer. We don't, however, have the opportunity to speak directly with the people responsible for growing the food. Um, And today, I'm so excited to say that we actually do. Joining me um, on the show is Steph Gaylor, founder of Invincible Summer Farms and someone who is working every single day to preserve the history and store of heirloom plants and orphan varieties. She maintains a seed bank that contains over 2,000 different tomato varieties alone. Um, She's also one of the founding members of the Long Island Regional Seed Consortium and the Long Island Cheese Pumpkin Project. Steph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, what's a cheese pumpkin? <laughs> um, so a cheese pumpkin is a, is a variety of pumpkin that you actually eat uh, rather than putting on your porch. And so being out here on the North Fork of Long Island, you know, there's a lot of traffic and people come out here. It's always um, kind of crazy to see people purchase things that they're never going to eat. Right. Um, like corn stalks and pumpkin. So the cheese pumpkin was actually saved from extinction. It's a, it's a flat pumpkin um, that's used for pies, and it's a great store uh, keeper. And it was saved from extinction by a local guy, and it's a local variety, so it's it's actually pretty cool. So, yeah, I had I had never heard of it. Um, and this is a, a great sort of example of the work that you do. And before we kind of talk more about um, the consortium and and what you're actually doing um, on the farm, I want to talk a little bit about your background. So, you know, how long have you been farming, and how did you get into it? So, um, basically, I got into farming six years ago. I know it's hard to believe. I was always gardening as a kid. I was a gardener um, while I was a full-time working at Stony Brook University. And then I kind of made the leap into farming. Somebody said, you should, you know, talk to these folks about leasing land or more land. And so that's how it happened. And how I got into it is basically I'm just like any other seed saver. I hoard things. Uh, and it's a well-known fact. Um, when I was a kid, I started collecting baseball cards, and I had to have them all. And there's so many different seed varieties. You know, it's like the same thing, like trying to collect them all, trying to preserve them all. Um, so that's, you know, that was essentially the genesis of how this whole thing started. And it snowballed. Um, and then where? So, what is what is really seed saving? It is ex- exactly what it sounds like. 
Um, so seed saving, we've been saving seeds and um, impacting, you know, domestication of whether it be uh, livestock or or vegetables since since the dawn of time and, and agriculture when we stopped being foragers. So basically seed saving is something just we're, we're allowing a plant to go over its maturation cycle of when we would eat it, and then we allow it to go to seed and we save it. And it's a, it's a fairly uncomplicated process. It's just we've fallen out of touch with it. So, when why is that? It seems like isn't this something that farmers do every day? I mean, how do they? How else do you get your seeds? No. Um, so actually, you know, it was because we have corporate seed companies, you know, mainly taking over a lot of it. We do have a lot of very small companies coming out now, um, who are doing some really cool things. But, um, you know, we've stopped saving seeds in like 1940, you know, 1930. There was no reason for it. Um, commercial catalogs started coming out um, at the turn of the uh, turn of the 20th century, and that's when all this this boom started for purchasing seeds through catalogs. And so, what it's actually done is it's narrowed choices because more and more seed companies have, you know, over time um, gone under or changed or, you know. Just they're no longer in existence. And so we have, you know, instead of being able to choose from like 98 leaks, which we once had, we can choose from two. And so, you know, it's really become an issue. Why is that? If like, is that just because if something happens to, you know, the the one variety that we do grow um, in terms of like a... Um, yeah, so there's something that, like decimates those crops. It's like we're not going to have bananas, for instance, or leeks. Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, I mean, for for whatever reason, like the seed companies are determining trends, and that's kind of an issue. I mean, if if you look at France, I mean, even their catalogs of seeds, they have like twelve or fourteen different types of leeks. Leeks are important if you're going to be farming all season, you know, all year, because it's a winter crop that that's very easy. Um, to grow. And so, you know, now we have these hybrids. We can't reproduce, you know, these these seeds that are not open pollinated. Farmers can't really save them and we're relying on this. I mean, so many, you know, small seed companies will say we lost this variety. It was a great variety. The seed company, for whatever, for whatever reason, decided to no longer produce it. And now it's lost. So, I mean, there's a lot of it, it's, a, it's a complicated question that have a lot of like different threads of an answer, but that's that's pretty much primarily the thrust of that. I guess I don't understand why people started turning to catalogs um, as opposed. Is it just like a more is it more labor con, uh, intensive to like see, you know keep the seeds and 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 keep using them year after year? Is it just easier? I mean, so I mean. In looking at archival materials, I think, you know, there was this push towards marketing, first of all. And these different seed companies like Bolgianos and Maryland, people were coming out with their own varieties, these seed companies. Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of in a race against against each other. But, you know, that kind of competition, again, narrowed it. Um, farmers have gotten away from saving their own seed. Long Island was a seed, you know, like a seed nexus of the world. We grew all kinds of seeds here. Hmm. And one of the earliest seed companies is like literally four blocks away from our house. And their catalog is full of things that farmers found. There was a Vandergraaw cabbage that was out here and the farmer was Vandergraaw. They were looking for things out in the field. They were saving their own seeds. They weren't purchasing things from catalogs. That's how you farmed back then. Right. And you, you swapped seeds with farmers. So, And now that's not common practice. No, it's like we people have forgotten how to do it, and even, you know, it seems very mysterious, um, but when you explain it to people, I mean, it can get very complicated, but it's, it's also very simple. Plants will always go to seed. They will always receive themselves. So it's... So you're just promoting, you're just making that possible, basically. Yeah, exactly. How so, do I mean, you- we want to get, we, I mean, we want to take the mystery and the complication out of it and go back to that. And that is the work that you're doing on the farm, kind of like in practice. And then, and then, how does the Long Island Seed uh, Consortium, sorry, the um, the Long Island Regional Seed Consortium, how does that sort of uh, relate or play into what you're doing uh, at Invincible Summer? So, Invincible Summer Farms, we're a for-profit farm. We work with directly uh, with 
with restaurants, and we developed new varieties for the restaurants. Um, we breed things. I had met Ken Entlinger, who's like an internationally renowned breeder. Ironically, he's not known here mm-hmm. on Long Island for saving the cheese pumpkin. People don't even know who he is, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. But um, so we breed these varieties for profit, and that's that's separate from the Regional Sea Consortium. The Regional Sea Consortium, we're primarily focused on um, research, av- advocacy, and education. Um, and I didn't want to include that in what we do on the farm because those are like two separate entities. Okay. Having said that, having said that, so we do, um, we started seed library initiatives out here. We have a seed swap. We have classes. Um, and so that's the primary purpose of, of the seed consortium is, is to really promote seed saving and how to do that. And is this something that you started to do like immediately when you, when you first got the farm? No, no. Um, so I was, I was really feeling uh, like a unicorn, you know, out here because I was saving these seeds and, and, you know, I had all these crazy varieties. They were very hard to sell. And I had heard of Ken Etlinger for like years and years, and he was like this mysterious figure. And everyone's like, is Ken Etlinger still alive? He doesn't answer emails. Um, and and he's, he's known for all of this information when he had his own seed company back in the 70s. Um, he's a retired botany professor. I got in touch with him uh five years ago, my second year of farming, and I heard from him. And um, we, we began this, like, long mentorship uh, friendship. Uh, and, you know, I consider him to be, like, uh, my CD soulmate. Uh, <laughs> that's what we call, we, we call each other. But um, that's really how it started. And it, it wasn't like this idea about starting a regional seed consortium. We just sat down with a few other farmers to see if we could get other people saving seeds. Um, because Ken's tried to do it for so long, and he said to me one day, he's like, where have you been my whole life? Mm-hmm. And that's, um, and so we, we have started people saving seeds. We have taken the mystery out of that and made it very accessible for, for pretty much everybody. And you do that basically through your advocacy work? You think you credit that to uh, getting the word out? You know, I think gardeners, uh, seed savers, uh, farmers are very generous by nature. And when you're when you save a seed, in order to save a variety, you have to share it. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a sense of like passing something on. You don't want to see it um, go. And I think that's, um, you know, it's not necessarily advocacy. I think it's like a sense of uh, community. It's a sense of like reaching out and, and creating a chain of people who are who are saving things that are would not otherwise be saved and. By also doing that, creating choice and creating conversation. And um, I mean, I could talk about this ad infinitum, but like people see things in catalogs and it's like, oh, this tomato is so great. You know, it's all mar- slick marketing. And then when you grow it, it's terrible. But you could hear from other seed savers, yeah, this is a great tomato and that one's not because I grew it and I saved it. And here's the story. Is, um, has there been pushback from industry to the work that you've been doing with the you know, seed savers? Um, not, I think uh, the biggest battle, you know, the, the industry is, is a very, it's a complicated idea because I think there's like the corporate industry. Um, there's been pushback from people who save, you know, companies and farmers who save seeds, like they will fight back against the two GMO crops, like sugar beets on the, on the East coast. I mean, on the West coast in like Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're fighting, they're fighting the seed industry there, but generally speaking, um, I think it's like very subversive what people who are saving seeds and companies who are saving seeds are doing because they're making it like open source. So they're basically giving it away. Um, and it's, it's kind of like, it's turning the idea of patenting something on its head. Um, and it's, it's, gaining steam for sure so but that seems like something that um you know anything open source industry would really have a problem with especially as it continues to get more popular it could but i mean they're not open source you can't save their seeds you you can't i mean there's patents on it utility patents i mean it's you can't even get the seed for like research purposes so but what if you grow it? I mean, if you if you buy it once, why can't you just save those seeds after? I mean, that may be maybe that's a super naive question, but that just seems logical. Or are they not like is because you no, you sign an agreement. A lot of these seeds that are proprietary, you sign an agreement. And with other, um, I have to say, with other breeders, with things that I've read, I have. It's just like a it's a handshake. Uh, you sign a material transfer agreement. It, it's typical, um, you know, that you won't save the seed, you know, because it's somebody's property. 
if it's open pollinated. However, if it's not open pollinated and it's a hybrid, it's it's they could recall it. I mean, they can sue you if it's replicated. It's just it's a it's a it's crazy. But I mean, is it uh, is it really like is Monsanto going to really go after a small family farmer? Sure. And it's it's not just Monsanto. It's it's like it's very large. It's you know everybody knows Monsanto. They're like this very nefarious figure. Yeah. Um, and but there's tons of them. They're Syngenta, you know, and they're all, you know, they and they're contracting out to not to other farmers, but they're contracting out to like third world countries who could do it much cheaper. Really. Um, and yeah, yeah I, I mean, most of the seed is not grown here. Um, which is also another, like, I think, kind of dirty secret, you know, like, where are your seeds really coming from? Right. Because it's in the catalog doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, that that catalog grew it. Um, wow. Just like, just like farm stands that say local. I always say local means not grown by us. We didn't grow it. Because local means, like, if I'm on Long Island, it could mean New Jersey. Right. Local is a relative term. So, I mean, there, there's, like, a lot of... Um, there's becoming a lot more transparency in um, in food and in you know seeds and where the stuff comes from, um, but that's you know that's an ongoing process of really trying to be honest. Um, and when when the culture isn't there to be right. Um, so what? Um, so I guess how does this impact the consumer? I mean, you know, that's kind of the first thing. Like, how do I know? Um, what I'm, what I'm, like, why is it important, basically, for people to be eating different varieties as opposed to just sort of the more generic one? Is it, like, less healthy? Um, well, this is, this is a perfect question because um, I, I was speaking to people yesterday, and I said it's like fake news. Okay. Because, uh, because people are like, oh, well, you know, are they non-GMO seeds? I said, first of all, gardeners can't purchase GMO seeds. There's, and there's only two GMO seeds that you could that you can get. You know, there's no such thing as a fish that was injected into a tomato and all this other kind of crazy stuff. It just, it's like fiction. Um, but so what happens is all these terms become very confusing. Um, you know, what's non-GMO? What's organic? And so what happens is, is that the consumer is trying to make the best um, guess based upon what they've been told. And I mean, even even for me, who I farm and I grow my own seeds and all this other kind of stuff, and every every week, every month, every year, I learn something new about the lack of transparency of and and the lack of understanding and, and how confused people are about, um, you know, what their food is, where does it come from, uh, you know, is it a hybrid, you know. What, and what does that mean? I mean, it just like, is it a cross between, obviously, a hybrid, that's pretty self-explanatory, but how does that relate? I think there's a lot of confusion to your point about, like, about GMO, non-GMO, um, you know, is hybridization a bad thing? And how does that relate? Hybridization is not a bad thing, because every single vegetable that we eat was, was wild once, and mankind domesticated it by selecting it. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, everything's a hybrid that we keep selecting. Right. However, a hybrid uh, for technical purposes of this discussion is like it's an F1 that you can't save and was created by a company. So, I mean, if you save a sun gold, it's never going to be a sun gold again. It's going to be something different. Really? Um, yeah. So it's like I, it's easier to understand this. I always explain it in terms of like a poodle and a cockapoo. You know, you and your neighbor, um, one, one of you has a poodle, one of you has a, a a cocker spaniel, and you have a fence, and you keep breeding them, and they're always poodles, they're always cocker spaniels, and one day, somebody hops over the fence, they have a wild night, and you get a cockapoo. <laughs> That's an F1. That's an F1, your cockapoo. Okay. Um, so, you know, and then if you have the poodle and the cockapoo, it's not, it's not either one of those things again, and that's pretty much if you save the F1C, that's what it's going to be. Um, and then you start to get all these mutts. Um, so... But the thing about F, the reason why I hate hybrids is because everybody grows sun gold and then it becomes a race to the bottom because a sun gold in Italy is going to taste exactly the same as a sun gold in New York City. They are the same thing. And so then if all the farmers are growing sun gold, then we're competing against each other. Mm-hmm. And that's stupid. 
Yeah. Yes, I would. I would definitely say so. So you think actually this is something that I was talking um, on my last episode. Uh, I had Mary Nessel on and we were talking a little bit about um, uh, I'm trying to like how, how do we get on this topic? Basically, how there is a lack of. Um, coordination amongst farmers in this country who um, grow f- specialty crops, quote unquote, you know, who grow fresh fruit and vegetables, they don't really band together. They see themselves as competitors. And what that the upshot of that exactly. is, that, yeah, they, they you like there's no sort of like organizing um, body or spirit to like kind of get together and lobby Congress for um, like basically privileges that the, say, beef industry or the dairy industry enjoy, whether or not that's through the checkoff program or, um, you know, or something else. And you see that reflected in like very little kind of dollars given to farmers who are actually growing real food in this country. So that's, go ahead. No, 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 no. I was like just wondering kind of like what your perspective is on that. This is a little bit um, tangential to what we're talking about, but not really. I mean, <laughs> I mean, do no, you know, it's, it's, it's not at all, because I mean, what's happening is, is like even school gardens and God bless them. Mm-hmm. They're getting more money than farmers who are doing like things that are unique. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's the problem is, is first of all, the reason why farmers are so competitive against each other um, is because it's been like this for such a long time. Um, and I think that that competition would be reduced just it wouldn't be as competitive, just like it is in other places, if every farmer had their own variety. Then it wouldn't be like, hey, where do I get the cheapest sun gold? It could be like, hey, that farmer has uh, cabbage X, Y, and Z. It's really good. You know, just like cheese mm-hmm. in France. You know, you go down one block, it's a different, it's the same cheese, but it's a different flavor. So, I mean, it's, it's the same It's the same thing. We have over like 8,000 different types of tomatoes. Why are we limited I mean, so like, that's crazy, well, by the way. That, like, was, blows my mind a little bit. Like, really? Yeah. <laughs> Who yeah. knew? I mean, like, 8,000? I didn't know that yeah. was possible. I'm yeah. totally naive. Yeah. So, I mean, but I see the same ones. I mean, this is obviously what we're talking about, and it's the per- right. and it's the, the problem. But um, I just know, like, what is an example of, like, tell me a little bit more about tomatoes. You, we, I actually, yeah. Wait, so I'm I'm sorry I'm like no. very tangential. No, like no, I no. get off on one thing, but so going back to policy is that I think it's also consumer based because farmers are not having conversations with consumers saying you know but you're buying like a, the same lettuce that's ten cents cheaper, um, and that's you, you're going by a price point, mm-hmm. and so it, it's it's like a very complex it's like all of these things are are inter um, they're intersected mm-hmm. and they're playing against each other but without the conversation happening among the coordination among all those different groups so what so what would that, it take yeah. to, to to do to you know have increased coordination like is that honest is that, conversa- yeah. honest conversations you know like people should start asking their farmer like did you it says local but where did you really get this from like you know, we, we a lot of times I see string beans, and it says local string beans. It, there, you cannot pick string beans fast enough to make a profit, um, and because people want them dirt cheap. So, most of the time, they're machine harvested in like New Jersey, right? Um, and so, and but it says local, and and people assume well, it's local, but that's just you know, it's it, again, it's like a marketing technique that. People just fall into. Well, local, I mean, I think, I mean, there is no sort of federal, there is no official designation for terms like local. And, you know, like you said, it is kind of, it is all relative. So, I mean, you know, local could really mean regional. Um, right. But is that, that, that to me is like the least of all issues because you're, I mean, you're still sort of building and strengthening a regional food shed, right? And, and supporting the, the local, the regional economy because of that. I mean, there are farm stands. There are farm stands that sell uh, limes. Okay, well, that's a problem. That's that's not local. <laughs> so, so, so that's not local, you know. And people are surprised that we don't have avocado trees. Right. So, so I mean, I, I mean, I swear. And so, you know, the problem is, is the problem is us farmers, mm. or you know, people who who, you know, I mean, for the most part, I think everybody has good intentions. Everybody's, everybody's just trying to get by. You know, nobody's getting rich off of any of this. But the thing is, it pits everybody against everybody else. And I think if there was, like, an unraveling of this, 
and kind of like a conversation among all these different shareholders, people would be able to earn a living without selling limes and avocados at farm stands. But again, we're back at this. It's like a vicious cycle. Right. I mean, people don't people don't really care where their food comes from. They don't want to learn about like seasonality, for instance. I mean, that's another right. buzzword. But anyone who's looking for avocados in um, in the Northeast is going to be super disappointed because we don't have that. And then, um, right. you know, so it's a cha- it's a behavioral change. It's getting people to like eat and enjoy different varieties and what is you know like. Native, I would say, like native to uh, certain regions, um, and then it's a price issue, right? Consumers really expect to be able to get tomatoes at like, I don't know, dollar ninety nine a pound or something egregiously low. That probably reflects the quality um, of the tomato that they're getting, but they just don't want to spend more. So, how do you move the needle on that? I mean, it's, I guess, it's education, but people, it's like, do people really want to prioritize learning about their food? They don't. I I think when people taste the difference, they do. Yeah. You know, I mean, because there is a difference. Right. Um, no doubt. There's a tremendous difference. But, I mean, the problem also, I mean, we'll go back to the vicious cycle model, um, which is an, you know, a model. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, so we talk about seasonality. But what choices do you have when a seed company is basically telling you you can't really grow anything in the winter? Um, yeah. You know, as I have as I have, like, our project, one of our projects this year was uh, winter tomatoes. Nobody has winter tomatoes. They fell out of favor here in the United States in about 1920 once we came up with, like, transcontinental and uh, we were able to stick things on railroad cars. Uh But they have been around a long time, and they get ripe in December. You pull them off in the fall. Uh, The interior gets ripe first, and the outside gets ripe in, like, the wintertime. And there's tons of these varieties. There's probably like 800 varieties from Europe and all over the place. We have two that were actually developed here on Long Island in Rockaway by this guy, Albert Carmen. Wow. Um, and he did, he did all kinds of wheat. He was like this amazing breeder. Um, he did tomatoes, uh, Thorburns, terracotta, like a ton of things. But these are all things that because we don't have this anymore, it could be seasonal. But because it's not offered... People think that their season, you know, their seasonal choices are like winter squash, mm-hmm. uh, kale, mm-hmm. and you know, root crops that have been stored. Which is just it doesn't need to happen that way. But because the choices are narrowed, that's what seasonality means. Like nothing that tastes good. So I so you can get so basically all I heard is that you can get tomatoes in December. <laughs> that is like a dream come true yeah. for me yeah. in the northeast. Sure. I mean in Italy there's one called Regina um, Pomodoro. They they it's a very old method. Um well, almost all winter keepers have very strong stems and what's traditionally done is you tie string around the stems and kind of hang them like a ristra. Mm-hmm. In Spain I got a, a lot of a collection from this guy Paco and I have to tell you they are freaking amazing. Um, he, he mentioned that he wanted to, like, open up, like, a museum or some kind of uh, area of where just these winter varieties were being kept because it's only one farmer in Spain who's growing them. These are all, like, very unique to that farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, it's just tremendous the, the amount of things that you, you can actually have and grow that will store, like the cheese pumpkin. The cheese pumpkin you can have until, like, April. Wow. Um, that I would have not thought just, either. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's amazing. It's, it's, it stores incredibly well. I mean, so, you know, I think we can have an increase in choices of seasonality, and people can learn about seasonality and look forward to seasonality if we had things that were different and we had things that uh, tasted really good from um, that farmer. Yeah. Okay, so we have to take a super quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors, but um, we're going to be continuing this conversation um, in just a minute, so stay tuned. Yeah. 
Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard-to-get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we are speaking with Steph Gaylor, founder of Invincible Summer Farms um, in South Hold, Long Island. Um, okay, before we went to break, we you um, said something about getting seeds from Italy. Is that right? Yeah, so um, part of the Regional Seed Consortium, we're uh, researchers, and we do research on these varieties. You know, we work with a lot of different gene banks. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, send feedback back. We see how things play in the field, and we give these to other people who are who are working with the consortium to use. So, so you're allowed. <laughs> you're allowed yeah. to bring the. You're allowed to bring these seeds back because I thought there was some sort of yeah, a. We have, yeah. I mean, we have certificates, and then you know, like I said, we also get stuff from you know really cool stuff from from gene banks. But you know, there is a, there is a you know a hefty. Um, responsibility that comes with that. So, I mean, we, I take that, and everyone who works with that takes that very seriously. Uh, what are gene banks? Is that something that's regulated by, like, is that like a USDA um, program? Yeah, I mean, some of them are that. Some of them are, uh, they're, in, they're in Germany, they're in Syria. I've gotten stuff from Syria wow. um, before, you know, yeah. years ago we, we were doing things. And so, I mean, things from Russia, I mean, probably one of the biggest gene banks is um from Nikolai Valvolov, which is another interesting story. Um, but you get a lot of things from these gene banks that are just incredible that have been collected um, from all over the place. Like, it's, it's amazing. Um, and so the purpose of this is like, you know, what is the, what, what are the, what's like the driving force be- behind uh, a gene bank? Just the same idea of promoting biodiversity or, um, yeah, why would a government want to get involved in this? And that. I mean, I mean, I mean, the way gene banks work are, are very complicated. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, things are donated. Sometimes they send people on expeditions, but it's basically like repositories of biodiversity. Um, they, you know, it's, it's not for, uh, you know, you can't write to them and get things for your garden or for your farm that you're just interested in kind of looking at. But I think um, they're tremendous assets. And I think people don't really... Um, realize that these like are, are things that are still holding up this it's like a giant library when all of a sudden we're like we're, we're at the checkout stand in the supermarket as opposed to like this uh, the Library of Congress so that's what repositories are and right now like I said we have like five magazines to choose from at the checkout line I always thought like gene banks kind of exist because if like you know the apocalypse happens and you no. know no okay like no. an entire like they, crops are wiped out and we still have no. okay <laughs> that, that that's there for the Svalbard seed, seed, seed vault um, is there for that purpose okay but even that as as I'm sure everybody knows that it flooded um, Amy Goldman who uh, was friends with Ken Etlinger still is she never met him uh, they talked on the phone for twenty years. They were friends, still are friends. Wow, they, and they never met? met her last year at the Cheese Pumpkin Project. Oh my gosh, that's her wait, husband yeah. is the guy who founded that. Carrie Fowler founded the Seed Vault, so it's, it was like these giant titans of seeds were at this thing. It's pretty cool. Okay, so you, um, I want to kind of get into some of the things that you have written about uh, on Instagram and, and um, you know, just through your work and ask you a few questions about that, like on a, on a more personal level. Um, okay. So you wrote that biodiversity is a moral imperative and not just a cool hashtag. By the way, I should have probably asked you this at the top, but we're going to talk about it now. <laughs> um, <laughs> like why? I mean, a moral imperative, that's... That's that's pretty. Um, those are you know that's a big call to action. So so why? Because everything's disappearing. I mean it, it's and it's and it's incumbent upon everybody. Everybody eats, and it's it's your 
you, by eating something that's different mm-hmm. and increasing that biodiversity, you are making a choice as a consumer. A farmer is making a choice that maybe their profit's going to be lower or maybe they're going to have trouble marketing this, but you're making a choice about what you do and why you do it. And I think, you know, having two choices of something when, in fact, we have 8,000 is, is terrible. And it is a moral imperative um, because it's just become very easy to take the lowest hanging fruit, so to speak, from catalogs. So, And, I mean, kind of to, you know, continuing um, – uh, I mean, I don't actually know if this is continuing, but <laughs> I'm thinking about, you know, the work that you do day in and day out. And um, in some of our previous conversations, you had said that you harvest, you personally harvest how many how many pounds of food a week? Well, this year, um, because of a lot of the issues with um, immigration and the, and the president, we everybody's been very short of labor. And this year has been like insane. So it was just primarily me as the only full timer doing 3000 pounds of tomatoes. Oh my god! Um, a week, and it was like three hours of sleep, four hours of sleep, seven days a week. Um, but it was like you know, I have all this cool stuff. I'm the only person who has it. If I don't get it to where it has to go, like the Shinnecock tomato, nobody's going to know about it. And I mean, I think a lot of these orphan varieties, which you had mentioned in the beginning, orphan varieties means that only one other person has it. And if you don't adopt it, it it's still only going to be one person, and that one if and when that person, you know, doesn't pass it on or it just dies. There are so many varieties that are just gone forever. Wow. Um, and it's it's insane. So, I mean, that's my drive. It's like I have to get these baseball cards <laughs> to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Except except instead of, you know, you hoard it and then you t- just to give it away. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, we still have, like, the, the an immense library. I mean, I only grow half of the seeds that I'm given. I mean, sometimes we're only given 10 seeds. A lot of seeds that Ken has that are now extinct, mm-hmm. we only got a very small amount. I only planted half of them. And then because if we lost half, then I still have another half. Do so, they... I mean, stuff like that. Sorry. No, what? no, I, I just totally cut you off. Sorry about that. Um, no, no, no. So, <laughs> you go. This is... <laughs> this no, is... So viability drops down. Like, seeds don't last forever. Like... Onion varieties, alliums, leeks, they only last for a year. So if you don't grow them, I mean, the gene bank uh, for the USDA, they, their allium collection is suffering because they're not being replicated and the germination and the viability is just going down. So it is important. That was what I was going to ask. Uh, how long do seeds last? So what can, I mean, what can, can these seeds be given away? I mean, that seems like a good way to kind of encourage people to experiment with them and to start growing. Or is that not really you know, will they end up going to waste? Um, when we have the seed swap, a lot of people ask, you know, I don't have seeds to share. Can I still come? And like last year we had 700 people. If you don't have seeds, come. Seed savers will give you seeds. They want you to grow things that they love and that do well. So, I mean, to me, it's like uh, one of the, one of the things we say in regional seed consortium is grow, save and share. Um, because if you have that variety that's been in your family for like a hundred years and you're the last person to garden, you want to make sure that that lives on. And I think that's, that's really where the personal aspect of all this comes in. Like it's, we have to keep this going. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So one other thing, um, and we have about, um, you know, well, I could talk to you forever, but I want to make sure to get like all of my questions in, um, and this, right. well, before I actually go shift to this, I, you know, I really wanted to, okay, the, I really wanted to ask like this work, I, I have not, um, you know, worked on a farm, but it sounds really backbreaking. 3000 pounds of produce, you know, harvested by yourself a week. Like I didn't even know that was possible. Have you ever just, just tomatoes or just, just tomatoes, tomatoes, just tomatoes. Okay. Just tomatoes, just tomatoes, but have you, not including everything else. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you, so that is, that is incredible. I mean, has there ever been three hours of sleep all summer, like by yourself? Have you ever, it's literally backbreaking. Have you ever like just wanted to, to be like, nope, can't like, I just want to sort of take a break, throw in the towel. I mean, this is the hardest work people, you know, that, that someone can do. So has there, has there ever been a point where you're like, gotta, you gotta take a break. Can't do this. 
You know, I mean, I think for anybody, you know, I mean, I have a, a, a part-timer occasionally at night. You know, we, my nephew, um, would he was here for two months, um, and he would drive this stuff into the city, and then, you know, he left. But, you know, I think it comes down to whatever work you do. If you're a surgeon and, you know, in a war-torn country, it's the same thing. I mean, there, are, in terms of, you know, doing something that's grueling and that you're kind of in this isolated area by yourself, but you know the benefits are immense and they're critical. And so then it's like you, you keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you do curse God and probably drink beer more than you should, <laughs> but <laughs> but you know but then you know it kind of lets off tomato season ends and then you have another crazy you know crop coming in. But no, I mean I think it's 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 you know the, again it's you know I think if you believe in something strongly enough you'll you'll do anything yeah. for it. Well, I, I wish there were more people like you actually um, in whatever field that they that they work in. Cause I don't think that's very common these days. Um, okay. So this is what I, I also wanted to ask you about something that you wrote on, on Instagram and, um, you wrote, I'm going to, uh, quote, um, lady farmer, lady chef, lady president, it's hard enough for women to get their due as equally capable. Um, and in a time where it's so easy to stereotype people according to race, religion, age, gender, let us see each other as individuals with unique qualities. So I read this and my first thought was, you know, women are the largest minority group in agriculture. Don't we want to sort of recognize and champion women who are working in a male dominated field? I mean, and I guess, I guess like, the, you know, isn't it, wouldn't you be proud by, you know, having like the first woman president, for instance, which didn't happen. <laughs> but would you call her a lady, a, the lady president? No, you'd call her madam president. Right. And I think that was part of the whole thing. I mean, women are underrepresented everywhere. unless yeah. You're a teacher or a nurse mm-hmm. or, you know, a, a psychotherapist. I mean, these are like traditionally jobs for quote unquote women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, by flattening this idea of gender, I think, yes, it's important to champion women, absolutely, but the reason is is because, in part of it, we do it to ourselves. If we're known as lady farmers, mm-hmm. then what is that saying about us? You, we're, not, we're not farmers. We're not, um, we're not as capable as men. And so that's, I really have a serious issue with it because, I mean, just the connotation, I would never call a president a lady president or a lady surgeon the lady surgeon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just... You want to give people who are capable and good at what they do, they're doing it. That's gender blind. I mean, these are gender blind jobs. I mean, we're not like in competitive weightlifting where obviously men are going to do better. But I mean, what are we really talking about here? I mean, but but the, the idea of like kind of equality, like, yes, sure, equal playing field in terms of opportunities, but to treat women the same, say, as men, like, does that mean that women can't, we shouldn't get like, privileges like maternity leave or, um, you know, like breastfeeding rooms in, in, um, in, at the workplace, like, wouldn't that be truly a same playing field, like equal opportunity? But I mean, I don't, I don't mean flattening, flattening, um, flattening the idea of privileges, um, which is a loaded word, mm-hmm. but I mean, everybody should have the privilege of when your child is born to have time off. Um, and I think by, by treating women differently, and yes, because we're, I think it's important to say women are underrepresented. Mm-hmm. We need to include them, but we need to include them on the same merits that we include men. Because there are men, I mean, it's funny because I get a lot of texts from chefs. My face is not on Instagram, mm-hmm. and I get a lot of texts from chefs. My full name is Stephanie, mm-hmm. which I hate. And so I'll just <laughs> say Steph. And they always think, they always assume that I'm a guy. Hmm. So to me, it's like it's it's very telling because people really like my produce and they really like the fact that it's different. Mm-hmm. But it challenges their assumption that because I'm not saying I'm a woman, you're assuming I'm a man. And I've just turned your notion exactly 180 degrees around. And it's because I'm not saying that that's who I am. I, I don't want to I want to be treated equally on the merit of my work. But I think women do need the recognition of that it's an unequal playing field right. without dumbing the playing field down. Right. It's funny that you, you know, your, your picture isn't on Instagram, I think. And people think that you're a man. I think that whenever you see a, 
a picture of a farmer in this country, it's always of a man, you know, always. It's like what we think of immediately and not like, you know, not this is what most people think of when they think of a farmer. They picture like, uh, I don't know, an older man in, in a field. <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, it also goes to this like kind of cult of personality with food now. I mean, it's like everything is branded with a personality. If you just said this was restaurant A and B and you didn't know who was cooking um, and you just had to judge the food and you didn't know what farmer was growing it, you would just judge it on quality and, mm-hmm. and like the atmosphere and how you remembered it. But because we already have these preconceived notions about if it's a woman chef or if it's a male chef or if it's a woman farmer versus a male farmer. And I think that's why I absent myself from all of these things, because it's not about me. It's not about, you know, Invincible Summer Farms. It's about the diversity of what you eat. And we have such crazy things like para abruzzi, this crazy tomato. We have, I mean, it's, people should be wowed by nature and what we're trying to do and the fact that the alchemy of a farmer and a chef could create something that a consumer that's going to blow their mind, that to me is very special. But that's not based upon, that's based upon a relationship, not, a, not about uh, an ego or an identity. All right. I so. love it. Um, all right. What are some, we have to unfortunately wrap up yeah, pretty okay. soon, but um, what are some upcoming initiatives or projects that you have coming down the pike? So we have a lot of, um, it's kind of like a chef, um, farmer, um, collaborative and we've in, we've invited other people on board who've supported our work um you know some retailers uh who you know we wholesale our stuff to but that's a that's a very small group of people who can actually say wow this is something very weird mm-hmm. and it's really good and i think i can sell it so i mean we're not selling like cases you know four packs of tomatoes and a clamshell <laughs> um and i think that that's a really like again it's a very unique community of people who really like food who really get the fact that um, it's grown by people who have hearts and, you know, and passion for something. So uh, there's just a lot of cool things to try to get the word out and try to get people excited, including farmers, mm-hmm. um, to try to, like, push this ball forward. And then where specifically can we find some of your products? Some of your products? Um, well, it's primarily, you know, New York City restaurants um, that, I, that I wholesale to. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a few um, and you see my name on the menu, mm-hmm. you know that that's, that's one of us. Any specific restaurants you want to call out or do you? You know, we, you know, I, I work with um, the cook shop group. I work with, because right now it's just me and, yeah. <laughs> you know, so we've crazy. had to like slow down, <laughs> um, you know, but all these people, the cook shop group, the Mark Meyer group, um, Missy Robbins at Lilia, mm-hmm. um, Ignacio Matos's, uh, three restaurants and, uh, Italy, uh, Flatiron. They're, they've just been tremendous supporters and, you know, you could send them a, a weird vegetable and they're like over the moon about it. So, I mean, those guys are just, it's really good to work with those chefs and they're never like playing with a farmer. Let's make a deal because that happens too. like, Oh yeah. my, it's like 10 cents over my price point. These guys are like, wow, you, what you're doing is really important. It's really not what we would pay for a standard sun gold, mm-hmm. but it's worth it. And I mean, that's really the, again, the relationship that makes the whole thing work is because I can't do the work I do without being supported by great people like those restaurants mm-hmm. and, you know, Michael Winnick and what he's doing, our harvest. and Our harvest. <laughs> what? I said our harvest. Shameless plug yeah. on my hat. My yeah. <laughs> Always. No, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that to me is, it's, 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 that's, that's a critical link. And without that link, then we're back to the like square one with this vicious cycle again. So, and it's, it's also, you know, not to again, continue this, this plug, but it's great for people to be able to try your products, um, fresh, right. And how like, like right off the vine, I mean, it's, it's wonderful to have something prepared for you, um, by a chef, but like, you know, we, I think that for us, it's also important that people can kind of go and have that relationship, you know, directly with your product. Um, right. So, anyway, yeah, that's the only way you. Uh, that's the only only way that you can get it is retail through our harvest. <laughs> so I mean, and and be, and because I've done this before, and you have like the stories that I could tell about trying to work with somebody who's trying to sell your stuff. It's a nightmare, and it's been like it's the only person that we work with mm-hmm. in, in retail product because it's it's just 
you know, you feel comfortable. I don't feel like I'm going to get attacked about prices, and I, I don't have to worry about getting paid. I know I'm going to get paid in a timely fashion or right then and there. And it's just, I mean, I think that's why farmers stay away from wholesale, too, is because you just... Yeah. You get, you yeah. get. I mean, sort of... You get screwed. Yeah, yeah. That's big time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, well, we're going to have to wrap it there, uh, you know, end it there. But thank yep. you so very yeah, much for taking time out of your really busy day to chat with us. Yes, thank you so much. I loved having this conversation. <laughs> All right. Well, I, we, will, we will continue it off air for sure. <laughs> okay. All, All right. right. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Um, for more about the work that Steph is doing, check out InvincibleSummerFarms.com and you can find um, them on Instagram at InvincibleSummerFarms as well. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support. I also want to thank our um, the newest addition to the Eating Matters team, Hannah Weiss, uh, for her support, um, as well as our engineer, Vitor Hirscht. Uh, uh, show music is, as well always, by Tim Archer, and all of our episodes are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Um, and if you like what you hear, let us know in the comments section. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook, and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.